Well, it's just about time to, to get underway. We're going to be in Ruth chapter 4 tonight. We're going to be looking at the first 12 verses of the chapter, and then, Lord willing, we'll finish it up next Wednesday night. I think I'll read the text and then we'll pray, starting in verse 1 of Ruth chapter 4. Now Boaz went up to the gate and sat down there, and behold, a close relative of whom Boaz spoke was passing by. So he said, turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. He took ten men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the closest relative, Naomi, who has come back from the land of Moab, has to sell the piece of land which belonged to our brother Elimelech. So I thought to inform you, saying, buy it before those who are sitting here and before the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one but you to redeem it. And I am after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, On the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you must also acquire Ruth the Moabitess, the widow of the deceased, in order to raise up the name of the deceased on his inheritance. The closest relative said, I cannot redeem it for myself, because I would jeopardize my own inheritance. Redeem it for yourself. You may have my right of redemption, for I cannot redeem it. Now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning the redemption and the exchange of land To confirm any matter, a man removed his sandal and gave it to another, and this was the manner of attestation in Israel. So the closest relative said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, and he removed his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses today that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilion and Maclone. Moreover, I have acquired Ruth the Moabitess, the widow of Maclone, to be my wife in order to raise up the name of the deceased on his inheritance, so that the name of the deceased will not be cut off from his brothers or from the court of his birthplace. You are witnesses today. All the people who were in the court and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah, both of whom built the house of Israel, and may you achieve wealth in Ephrathah, and become famous in Bethlehem. Moreover, may your house be like the house of Peretz, whom Tamar bore to Judah, through the offspring which the Lord will give you by this young woman. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word, and thank you for your people who are here to partake of it tonight. We pray that you bless our time, bless our study, bless those who are here. In Jesus' name, amen. A while back, I was in a discussion with someone who was questioning whether or not smoking marijuana was the will of God. The person was wondering whether or not they should allow pot smoking in their home. And my answer was simple and to the point. No, it's not the will of God. And one of the key reasons we know it is because it is against federal law. Not to mention that every heroin addict started by smoking pot. That's not to say everybody who smoked pot became a heroin addict, but all heroin addicts and drug addicts did smoke pot. Now, God is a God who works within laws. God is a God who works within customs and cultures. His word transcends all things, and never is that point more evident than when you come to this text in the book of Ruth. Ruth, as you recall, had gone home to Naomi from being with Boaz, and Naomi told her, sit tight, let's see what's going to happen. 
We saw last time that Boaz is a man of tremendous integrity. He was a man of the word of God. He was a man that was interested in obeying the word of God. He was certainly a man who wanted to submit himself to the customs and culture of the place where he lived, which, of course, was Bethlehem. He did not want to do anything that would be improper. He did not want to do anything that would be unbiblical. And what we learn here is that God is sovereignly working out his will in the lives of his people, and he works within the context of his word and customs and culture and leadership to accomplishment. Now, in the opening verse of the book of Ruth, we learn this story took place in the times of the judges, back in those times. We suspect this book is written somewhere around the time of David, which was 1000 BC. Judges would sit at the gate. They would make various judgments. The judges were supposed to take the word of God. They were supposed to base their decisions on the word of God. God laid out in his word guidelines for making all kinds of judgments on a variety of issues and a variety of topics. But sometimes the word of God wasn't always followed, just like it isn't in our day. When we come to this part of the narrative, we come to the part where Boaz makes a decision as to what he's going to do. We may remember that Naomi told Ruth they needed to wait to see what Boaz was going to do. Ruth went out to Boaz, and she wants Boaz to marry her. And Boaz had told her, I'm not the closest relative, but... If the closest relative isn't willing to marry you, and he has first option, I'm second in line, then I would be willing to do it. Well, in Ruth 4, Boaz takes front and center stage, and there are a series of eight specific actions that occur here that are very decent, very orderly, very God-honoring. The first one is Boaz went to the gate and sat down. That's what we read in verse 1. Boaz went up to the gate and sat down there. The town gate was an extremely important place. The text says he went up. We're talking about the topography. The gate usually set up on a hill or up on some perch. This was the place where the leaders of the city would sit to hear complaints. They would settle various disputes. The gate of the city was a place that was known to conduct business and carry out justice. It actually became a key judicial spot in the city, particularly Bethlehem. Now, you'll notice the conjunction now that starts the chapter. That suggests that Boaz immediately went to the gate after leaving the threshing floor, and he didn't go home first. I mean, we would suspect that when Ruth had left, you remember in the pre-dawn hours, she had gone home. Well, Boaz immediately goes to this gate. The fact that he went there and sat down indicates he's going there to carry out some judicial issue. We do know from Ruth chapter 3 that Boaz wanted to redeem Ruth. So the fact that he's sitting down at the gate means he's going to go there for that purpose. He's following the word of God. He's following the laws. And I would just say this. If anybody wants God's blessings in a relationship, they have to be willing to do it God's way. They have to be willing to do it in the way that God would prescribe. If they really want the blessings of God in the relationship, which brings us to the second action. Boaz asked the closest relative to sit down, verse 1. Behold, the close relative of whom Boaz spoke was passing by, so he said, Turn aside, friend. Sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. We never do learn this guy's name. Now, some have suggested that the reason we don't learn his name is because he isn't worthy of naming and mentioning in the Word of God because he was not willing to do the will of God in regard to filling his responsibilities as a close relative redeemer. Some have suggested that because he was not willing to give his name to 
Ruth, the Redeemer, then he's not named in the scriptures. I'm not sure of that because in the Bible you have plenty of losers that are named in the scripture, so I'm not sure that's the reason why he isn't named, but he's not named. We may recall in Ruth 3.12 that when it came to Naomi and Ruth, Boaz was not the closest relative. There was a relative closer than he was. And as Boaz is sitting at the gate, he spots that very guy. He spots that close relative probably walking to his field. I mean, that's speculation because the text doesn't say that. So when Boaz saw his close relative, he called out to him and said, hey, come over here and sit down. Now it's interesting that Boaz sees the man and the New American Standard identifies him as being my friend, but there's a play on Hebrew words here, Poloni Almoni. Those are the Hebrew words here, my friend. The actual words don't really say friend. It's like saying, hey, you. It's a very generic thing, like, hey, you, turn aside here and sit down. I mean, I'm not sure what Boaz is doing here, but he's not naming the guy. He knows that he is the closest relative in line, but he doesn't address him by name. He uses this generic invitation. But again, we see in this the silent, secret, sovereign hand of God here, because what are the chances that as Boaz sits down, I mean, here comes this nearest relative just happens to be walking by. This is not a chance thing that's going on here. You have the sovereign work of God that's taking place here. The timing of all of this is in the sovereignty of God. God's in this deal. Which brings us to the third action. Boaz rounds up 10 elders to make a legal decision. In verse 2, he took 10 men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. So they sat down. Now, every city had elders. We know from Exodus 18, 25 to 26, that Moses broke leadership down into numbers. And one of the numbers that he actually lists there in that Exodus text is the number 10. And there were obviously 10 elders of this city, and Boaz had to round these guys up in order to make some type of legal decision. So these men would have had to have left their work or their fields, and they have to go to this gate. They have to find out what's going on here. They have to listen to the case. They're going to have to make a decision, and they have to be willing to do that. These 10 were obviously citizens of Bethlehem. They were elders, and he brought them to the gate. They sat down. Boaz is working within the framework of what's right and proper. He's working within the framework of the elders and the leaders who were there at that time. He was working within the context of those guys when the event took place. And that is the way God works. He works within the framework of leadership. He works within the framework of structure and legal law. Now we must remember that Ruth had asked Boaz to consider marrying her, so he says, I've got to handle this in biblical integrity. I can't sneak around, go behind the backs of these leaders, and expect God's going to bless this. So he's right up front with this. You know, years ago when I was in another ministry, I had a couple who come to me and said, well, we don't really need a license or piece of paper to say we're married. Would it be okay if we just lived together? And I said, Yes, you do need a license and piece of paper. It's against the law. And if you check the state that we're in, it's a serious commitment against the law, and you could end up in jail. Now, I know most people don't follow through on that and put people in jail for that, but the fact of the matter is, God is not going to bless a relationship like that. He works within what's legal, and that is exactly what Boaz is doing here. He's handling this in a way that's legal. 
Which brings us to the fourth action. Boaz brings up the matter of buying the field and the land from Naomi. Verse 3, then he said to the closest relative, Naomi, who's come back from the land of Moab, has to sell the piece of land which belonged to our brother Elimelech. Now, there are two Old Testament legal principles that are brought up in this discussion. We have the redemption of land that's brought up, and that issue comes out of Leviticus 25, and then you have the responsibility of a near relative in regard to marriage, which is addressed in Deuteronomy 25. Now, neither one of these, as near as I can determine, is a real precise interpretation of the word of God. Land that was assigned as promised land was never supposed to leave a family. And Levitical law made that point very, very clear. If a family became poor, and if a family needed to sell the land, the nearest relative was to purchase it, and they were to pay a price, according to Leviticus 25:27. they were to pay a price of the value of the number of years of the remaining years till you got to the year of Jubilee, which was year 50. So let's say that you bought this and you were 25 years away from the Jubilee year, year 50, you would have to pay the price that would be the value of that land for 25 years. After the year of Jubilee, the land was returned to the original owner or the original family. So to actually buy this land, and we don't know how close they were to the year of Jubilee here, this would be a real financial commitment here. If you decided to buy this land, there would be a tremendous investment here. When Boaz had the nearest relative and 10 elders sitting at the gate, he brought up that matter first. He brings up the land deal. He said, Naomi's in a situation where she has to sell the land. Now, there are five stated realities he brings up. Naomi has returned. She needs to sell her land that belonged to Elimelech. And he brings up the name. This land belonged to our brother Elimelech. Boaz opens the discussion by saying Naomi has made a decision she needs to sell this land. Now this is kind of odd in some respects as I've tried to crawl through things because I can't find where widows were permitted to sell land because the land was to be given to the family or put in the family. And certainly that's the option here. It's going to go to a near relative. It's being offered here. But we learn from Numbers 27 that if a man died without a son or daughter, his property was supposed to pass on to the brothers. And if he had no brothers, you pass it on to the father's brothers. And if his father had no brothers, then you pass it on to the nearest relative of your own family. And there's no hint here that a widow just had a right to sell the property. But apparently she decided to do it. And Boaz is taking this up with the elders of this city. She put the land up for sale and Boaz is making this publicly known. Naomi was a widow. She had come back from the land of Moab. She needed some money, obviously. And to get money to live on, she needed to sell her land. And Boaz wanted her to get some money. He probably wanted her to get a good price for this land. She was in no position to farm it. There's no way that she's getting older as a widow. She doesn't have the strength to go out there and farm this land and get the produce from the land, but she could use the money. And so Boaz is making a presentation here in front of these elders that we need to sell this land to a close relative. So he gives this close relative the option. Which brings us to the second reality. You who are the nearest relative, you need to buy it. Verse 4 says, buy it before those who are sitting here and before the elders of my people. Now it was the responsibility, the first right, went to the nearest relative to be able to buy the property 
And in Leviticus 25, 25, we read, if a fellow countryman of yours becomes so poor that he has to sell part of his property, then his nearest kinsman is to come and buy back what his relative has sold. So we can assume the nearest relative was either a brother of Elimelech or a close relative of Elimelech, and Boaz is one step removed from that in the deal. So this guy's being offered the property. Which brings us to the third reality. If you do not want to redeem it, then tell us and I'll redeem it. Verse 4 says, But if you will redeem it, redeem it. But if not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one but you to redeem it. And after you, he said, I will redeem it. Boaz said, if you want to buy this, then go ahead and buy it. It's yours to buy. You're close in the family, but if you don't want to buy it, then I'm making this proposal here in front of all of this. I'll buy it. I'm next in line on this process. Which brings us to the fourth reality. The nearest relative said he'd redeem the land. Notice what you read there in verse 4. And he said, that's the end of verse 4, I'll redeem it. When this close relative, who's not named, heard you have first rights to buy this land, he looks at this as a financial deal. He sees it as a good land buy. That's what's going on in his mind. And when he gets the news that I'm the closest relative that can buy this, he says, okay, I'll do it. I'll buy it. Now, Boaz, at that point, must have experienced some type of letdown, but he still, as one commentator says, has an ace up his sleeve, which brings us to the fourth reality. Boaz says, if you buy the field, you have to also acquire and marry Ruth the Moabitess. He says there in verse 5, then Boaz said, now remember, he hasn't proposed this in the land deal. The guy wants the land. But then Boaz said, on the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you must also acquire Ruth the Moabitess, the widow of the deceased, in order to raise up the name of the deceased on his inheritance. Now Boaz brings up one more matter, and that is, if you purchase the land from Naomi, you must also commit yourself to purchasing and marrying Ruth the Moabitess. So if you take the land deal, you have to marry Ruth in the deal. It's a package deal. It's a package offer. And by mentioning she's a Moabitess, and notice Ruth didn't bring that up when she was with him earlier. We saw last time she didn't remind him of that. He reminds this guy of that, and he reminds these elders of that, because it would seem he's putting within their minds, yeah, this might not be a good deal after all. I mean, she's a Moabite. She isn't even an Israelite. And it's like Boaz is saying, by the way, if you're going to take the land deal, you have to be willing to marry Ruth, who's a Moabitess. And he's probably thinking he might not want to do it. By this point, Ruth, I'm convinced, means something to Boaz. I think he has now a real emotional attachment to her in view of all that's taken place. And I think he really does want to be with her and he wants this done right. But he's basically saying to this guy who has the first option, if you're going to take the land, you have to take her. Now, many people in Israel did not favor the Moabites. So by bringing that point up, Boaz is probably counting on the fact that could be a real fly in the ointment here. I mean, this guy might not want the land if he has to take her. I mean, it's one thing to buy somebody's land. It's quite another to buy land and marry a Moabite woman in the deal. And to establish his argument, he says the nearest relative must marry her and see to it that that family name is propagated. 
That's what he uses as his argument there. He says, you have to marry Ruth the Moabitess, the widow of the deceased, in order to raise up the name of his deceased and his inheritance. Now, this is clearly an allusion to that Deuteronomy law that we went through a few weeks ago on Sunday morning in Deuteronomy 25. But in that law, it doesn't really say that. I mean, that law basically says this. If a husband died without a child, the brother of the dead husband had a responsibility to marry the wife and produce a child. That's what that law said. Frankly, there doesn't seem to be any precedence for this near relative having to do that, having to do that with a Moabite woman. We know that this near relative is not the brother of McClone because McClone's brother died in the land of Moab. So in all reality, neither the near relative or Boaz were technically responsible to marry this girl. But Boaz is not doing anything wrong here. In fact, he's doing it right out in front of these elders at the gate. And any of them could have said, hey, where do you see that in the law? I would have been one of them, probably. I'd have raised my hand. I'd have said, show me that, would you? I don't remember reading that. Where do you see this has to go down? Where do you see that somebody who's just related has to marry this girl and produce a child through her? Nobody raised the argument. What we would conclude is that either this was a cultural application of that law that was made in Deuteronomy 25, or the other possibility is nobody precisely knew what the law actually said. I mean, we're back here in the time of judges, and you know, in the time of judgments, people were doing that which was right in their own eyes, and apparently they were doing that with the Bible. But it does set forth, I think, an important principle. Sometimes on issues, you just can't point to a Bible verse that solves it. And sometimes in life, When people are making decisions, you just can't say, oh, here, I can quote this passage, there you go, Lord bless you, apply it. Sometimes it takes a lot of prayer, searching the scriptures, thinking through a lot of biblical themes, thinking through a lot of things that relate to the specific situation that you're in. And I think this is kind of one of those situations. It doesn't fall under a real strict legal interpretation of the text. Which brings us to the fifth action. Boaz is told by the closest relative, "Uh, you go ahead and redeem her. Notice what he says in verse 6. The closest relative said, I cannot redeem it for myself because I would jeopardize my own inheritance. Redeem it for yourself. You may have my right of redemption for I cannot redeem it. You know, as we've said in our studies, if you're going to do the ultimate will of God, there are times you have to take a risk. Well, this guy is not willing to take a risk on this deal. The closest relative made a decision, I don't want to get into this. I would like the land, but I don't want Ruth along with it. The land would be a profitable investment. I can make a profit owning the land, but if you've got to take Ruth and I have to provide for her now for the rest of my life, that isn't such a profitable deal. I mean, the fact is two cannot live as cheap as one. And furthermore, he may have had other family members anyway. So he said, I can't redeem it for myself because I'm going to jeopardize my own inheritance if I do that. And I'm not actually sure what he meant by that, jeopardize his own inheritance, but he told Boaz to go ahead and take the deal. He may have thought, for one thing, I'm going to have to lay out money for the field and buy it. Then I'm going to have to provide for Ruth and her family, which would include Naomi. I'm going to have to see to it that she's taken care of too. Also would mean that in the end, his own inheritance would need to be changed to include some other people. 
in his own inheritance, which would include Ruth. Plus, the man may have already been married with children. There are some Jewish interpreters who think that he already was married with children. And so the guy's going, this is not a good investment for you. There's too much baggage here. I'm getting out of this, and I can't afford to make this deal, so you go ahead. Which brings us to the sixth action. Boaz is given a sandal from the nearest relative, giving him the legal right. Verse 7 says that, now this was the custom in former times in Israel. See, the book is written around the time of David, because we're talking about former times in Israel and a custom that was in the former times of Israel concerning the redemption and the exchange of land to confirm any matter. Now, apparently what happens here is if you made a land deal, it was customary for a person who bought the land to walk the property. Well, you probably do that when you buy land. I mean, when you go out and look at land, you walk the property, you see where the stakes are, where the acreage is. I mean, you look the land over, and it was similar back then. Well, then, if you went ahead and you were one who sold the property, as kind of a symbolic way in front of the legal people that were there, you handed the guy who bought the property the sandal, which basically said he has the right now to the property. I'm giving him the right to the property. So apparently what's happening here is this custom was displayed before these legal witnesses and before the elders, and he hands him a sandal. He hands Boaz a sandal, which basically is a statement that says, you now have right to this land, and you now have right to own it, and you have the right to redeem it. Which brings us to the seventh action. Boaz responds to all of this in verses 9 to 10. Then Boaz said to the elders, Your witnesses today that I've bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilion and Mechlon. Moreover, I've acquired Ruth the Moabitess, the widow of Mechlon, to be my wife in order to raise up the name of the deceased on his inheritance so that the name of the deceased will not be cut off from his brothers or from the court of his birthplace. You are witnesses today. Now, what we have here is an older man who is marrying a younger woman, but this is all above board stuff. This is God honoring. It's handled openly. It's handled biblically. This is not some secret island for immoral perverts. This is done out in front. It's done with God at the center of this. I mean, Ruth was a remarkable woman. And Boaz said, what in the world do you want with me? I mean, you have the choice of all these. And she wanted to enter into this relationship with Boaz. And now it's being brought up to these elders. And so there's nothing here that's funny about this. There's nothing here that's off color about this. And there are three responses Boaz has. Boaz addresses the elders and all the people. In verse 9, Boaz does this out in front of anyone. There's nothing clandestine about this. You know, when people are doing things they shouldn't do, they don't do it out in the open. When people are doing things they shouldn't do, they don't come in and say, let me share this with the board. I mean, let's talk this over to see what the will of God is. They don't do that. They're involved in the dirty stuff. I mean, Boaz is not like that. This guy is out in front. He's up front with everything he's doing. Secondly, Boaz declares that he bought the land from Naomi and all that belonged to Elimelech, Kilion, and McClone. He mentions them there in verse 9. We may conclude that he bought the land, he bought the house, the animals, everything that went with it. I mean, this was a major expense to him. This was a major investment for him to make. And thirdly, Boaz declares, I am redeeming and marrying Ruth the Moabitess. His argument was, well, she is McClone's widow, and I'm going to see to it that 
she doesn't die childless. The name is preserved. And this is the first time in the book that we actually learn that Ruth was married to McClone, because you don't learn it until you get over here to this verse. And frankly, it seems to me at this point that Boaz's primary motive is coming out at this point. It's not simply to buy land, it's to marry Ruth. He'd fallen in love with her. I'm going to talk about that more next Wednesday night, but he'd fallen in love with her at this point. I mean, in the way that she was, this is a classy, godly woman, a very humble woman, a very quiet, godly woman. And even though the preservation of the name was critical to Israel, and even though the purchase would be a financial boost to Naomi, and even though the land would stay in the family, the fact is, by this point, Boaz does have his eye on Ruth. He wants to marry her. Which brings us to the eighth action. All the people and elders legally agree to sanction this. Verse 11, all the people who were in the court and the elders said, we're witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah, both of whom built the house of Israel, and may you achieve wealth in Ephrathah and become famous in Bethlehem. Now the people, all the people that were there listening to this, watching this, and all the elders that were there were very supportive. There are four reactions. They all announced we are legal witnesses to this. That's what they said in verse 11 there. All the people who were there, we are witnesses. There's purity here. There's legality here. There's decency here. This is not some hidden deal that's behind somebody's back. This is out in the open. Secondly, they asked that the Lord would make Ruth like Rachel and Leah, who became great women in Israel. Now, that's an amazing blessing that they pronounce here. And I've got the wrong number there. Rachel and Leah had nine children between them. I think I've got, I don't know, I'm not good in math. I've told you that. Uh, they have nine children between them. Leah had six sons, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Ishakar, and Zebulun, plus a daughter, Dinah. And Rachel had two sons, Joseph and Benjamin. So between them, they have eight sons, which becomes the whole bulk of the entire nation, Israel. And so they are asking God to bless Boaz and Ruth at that same level. They're asking God to bless them at the same level that he did those two ladies. Thirdly, they asked that God would make Boaz wealthy and famous in Bethlehem. In verse 11, they said, And may you achieve wealth in Ephrathah, which is the suburbial area of Bethlehem, and become famous in Bethlehem. Now, Boaz was already a wealthy man. He was already a prominent man. We saw that earlier in the book. And what you have here is you have the key leaders and the people praying for Boaz that he'll be more prosperous and become more famous. Just imagine this. You have these godly people that are praying for Boaz who has just shown he's a man of integrity. They're praying that he would even be more prosperous, more wealthy, and more famous. And that's what they pray for him at this thing. This is God's hand in this, by the way. And finally, they ask that God would bless their offspring. In verse 12, moreover, may your house be like the house of Peretz, whom Tamar bore to Judah through the offspring, which the Lord will give you by this young woman. And boy, did God answer that prayer. We'll talk about that more next time, because through this union would come ultimately David, and through this union would ultimately come Jesus Christ. What an amazing answer to prayer God gave to this situation. This was a costly move for Boaz, but God blessed him because he was willing to take the risk. And what we actually have here is 
and really a great illustration, you have grace, grace in a union being shown to a Gentile by a Jew. And isn't that clearly a picture of what the Lord Jesus Christ does for us? The greatest Jewish Christological Savior, God's Savior, Jesus Christ, demonstrates grace to Gentiles all over the world, people like us, and enters into a union with us, just like Boaz did with her. I want to leave us tonight with just three concluding thoughts as we wrap this up. First of all, doing God's will is initially costly. Doing God's will is initially costly. I mean, Boaz is, this is not a cheap investment here. I mean, he has to buy the land. I don't know how many years were left till the year of Jubilee, but he has to pay the price that's computed, prorated based on the number of years left to give to Naomi. So it was a cost there. And then, of course, when he marries Ruth, that's a cost. So doing God's will is initially costly. Secondly, doing God's will is always profitable. Doing God's will is always profitable. In the end, because he was willing to do the will of God, he'll profit greatly. And finally, doing God's will always brings great blessings. It did for Boaz, it did for Ruth, it does for every single person who does the will of God. When you purpose to do the will of God, up front, out in the open, when you're obeying the scriptures, when you're being a person of integrity, you'll always be blessed of God. We certainly see that in this text. Well, our time is gone tonight. I want to thank you for coming. Good night. The Lord bless you.